Hello all, uh, welcome to another episode of Direct Shift Stories. Uh, this is your host Raj. Uh, today we are joined by our COO and uh, we have a very special guest uh, with somebody who is in family medicine for over 40 years. Welcome Dr. Forrest Jones. Hello, Thank you for accepting our invitation to be here. Uh, so over to you Wamshi uh, and uh, we'll, we'll start off the show from here. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Raj. Thanks again uh, for creating yet another powerful episode. I can already feel the power of it. I'm super excited. Um, sorry for, you know, if you're running late or anything, uh, but um, really looking forward to having this discussion today. Uh, after seven or eight episodes, I'm finally sitting here with the physician leader from my town, from Chai Town. So, <laughs> Dr. Jones, welcome. Um, Dr. Jones is a primary care physician, family medicine physician. He's also a physician advisor, um, trained at Northwestern University, worked in the Cook County hospitals. He has been a great champion for primary care all along, and now a great advocate for having on how to have end of care, end of life uh, care discussions. So today I'm really looking forward to discussing with him, brainstorming with him for the sake of all of our clinician audience out there on how primary care is shaping up, what is the best way to have some of these end of life care discussions? What are the challenges that Dr. Jones himself has faced or has ad uh, advocated people to come out from, etc. And also bring forward his journey, his story to all of our clinician audience out there that I'm sure will act as inspiration to many. So without much further ado, let me present to you, Dr. Forrest Jones. Dr. Jones, again, two minutes or one minute is not a great justice to your profile. I would give you an additional two minutes. Please uh, let us know more about yourself. How did you get to become a physician? What are your experiences uh, you know, in Chicago, in Northwestern, and what do you do today? Uh, you're too kind. Yes, uh, family medicine. Um, actually, I grew up in Chicago and was able to go to medical school at Northwestern. And the reason why I chose family medicine is because I just couldn't make up my mind. I went through all the rotations. I said, I like this. I like this. I like this. Why would I have to specialize and choose only one? And around that same time, which I have to date myself, was 1976, I found that Oh, there's family medicine, which had just really come into being. Uh, there were generalists who came together and decided to form the American Academy of Family Physicians. And I thought, okay, this is something I can do. This is right up my alley. And I was just grateful to do that. And there was um, um, a residency at Cook County Hospital. And I really loved working there because it was pretty egalitarian place. We had to do everything, as you can imagine. If a patient needed to go to x-ray, we took them there. We didn't just mm. leave it to someone else to take it there while we went uh, back to do charting or something. We took the patient there. We got to know our patients very well. And we were responsible uh, for them at Cook County. We really had the hands-on responsibility, which I thought was priceless. After that, I went into um, primary care practice. Um, it's interesting because I really had a desire to be an entrepreneur. That was one reason why I chose medicine as well. Um, but things didn't work out that way. Uh, number one, I was not that good a manager, <laughs> and we were not trained in that, of course, and medicine was changing. Uh, that was right around the time when um, managed care started coming in, which I personally believe managed care is 
a very good way to, to practice. Uh, I, I function a lot better in that type of environment as opposed to fee-for-service where you basically, um, you don't have to worry so much about each visit being a particular service and counting all of that. You basically can do whatever you feel is necessary. You can make your own decisions about what the visit needs to be about. Uh, you can do more preventive things. Of course, you do have to worry about coding, but that didn't appear to be the primary um, concern that I was faced with compared to fee-for-service. Um, possibly in fee-for-service, if I had um, turned to more support, because there are a lot of practice management uh, services available. And uh, again, I wasn't really trained in making use of those things uh, and so forth. Uh, but in any case, I'd been an employed physician. I actually sold my practice to um, a, uh, an enterprise. Um, now it's Aurora uh, Advocate mm. in the Chicago area. Mm -hmm. And then I retired from them and then um, did um, home visit. I was in a home visit practice for a while, which I enjoyed quite a bit because when I was at county, that was one of the things we were introduced to and were expected to do was some home visits. So I was with the home visit company for about a year and a half, almost two years. And then I joined another company, GenCare, and uh, worked with them for two years, two and a half years. Um, and um, that was a great environment as well. And their model was managed care, which for me is a good fit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perfect, perfect. No, great. It's a, it's a long journey. You have seen how medicine has changed all along, you know, especially primary care. And you're seeing now how primary care is being more tech enabled, et cetera. So for our audience, Dr. Jones, you know, when you say fee for service to manage care to now value-based care, et cetera, um, tell us a little more about what your experience has been in terms of um, the, the, the adoption of these models by the physicians as well from by the patients. Like, the managed care or, you know, now value-based care or where practices are collaborating with hospitals and health plans are creating population management yes. in order to help serve the outcomes versus looking at procedures, tasks. Yes. How have you seen the adoption of these models improve and what, in your opinion, is, is helping the adoption versus what is not helping the adoption? That's an interesting point because one thing I'm thinking is one thing I think of is that the uh, information technology mm. is a two-edged sword. Um, in family medicine, I was always interested in population management, and mm. um, but the resources are not there for the doctor on the ground. So, for example, if I saw a report that said a particular medicine had a side effect, I could not really go pull up a in, on my own screen, in my own software, pull up a list of all my patients who were on this mm. that I could reach mm. out to. Uh, and when I was employed, uh, that was not available either. Um, they'd have to run a special report, which they were reluctant to do because they had too many other things going on that were priority. Even now, I think, unfortunately, and I've always been in favor of information systems in medicine. I had Palm Pilot, and I had a, a Tandy back in the 1980s. <laughs> and so forth. Um, I kind of think that now the, the output of these systems is really for the managers and not for the doctors mm. because they have to create these reports. They have to, it's, it's, it's uh, pay for play value. You got to be able to document with data. 
and the doctors have basically become data entry. Mm. To, and at this point, I've seen some opportunities coming up where companies companies are trying to get in there where they can support doctors, where the doctors don't have to be the data entry person. But I think at this point for the enterprises, they really haven't seen the value in taking these services on yet. I've seen some try this, try that, but they haven't stuck with them. So apparently they just really haven't been as functional as they would want. But unfortunately, this data entry role has doctors burning out. I think that's one of the huge factors of burnout because you never finish charting. Mm. That was my experience. Super frustrating. Uh, you got to get the data into the fields and, and so forth. And um, you're kind of um, uh, being held hostage by that. And unfortunately, the patients see it too because we have a limited amount of time. You've got to focus on getting the documentation done because if it's not documented, it wasn't done. And so... It's, you know, we're, we have these initiatives where periodically or once a year we have to do the, the tutorials about how to interact with the patients. And, you know, you look at the patient and all these kind of things. And we get instruction in our uh, for improving our press gainy scores and so forth. And we try. Hmm. But you really cannot do both. You can't. Sometimes just do it. And um, it's kind of interesting to me where the doctors who really happen to be good at it, um, they become the standard, which I think they should be rewarded. But at the same time, that's not a high percentage. Most of us don't get it like that. Um, and it may be sometimes it's that doctor may have um, a different support staff, you know, because mm. who is your assistant is very personal. And, and, and so forth. And sometimes you have more choice in some companies than others. And so some doctors in their pod of um, staffing with them, they have a type of support that allows them to do that. Others, um, patients kind of gravitate to doctors who have a personality that they are in sync with. And so that's a factor. Um, mm -hmm. Our own personalities is a factor on how we prefer to work. Um, so it's not easy for management to kind of nail all those pieces and get them to where um, we're all humming and singing and the data show that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think I think you bring up a good point, which is IT is a double-edged sword. You're right. It can help adoption or at the same time, it could become the stickler in the adoption. Yes. So. Um, if I can interrupt I, you just a second, I'm kind of thinking that this is kind of, we've seen stages because mm -hmm. in the beginning, informatics was based here around uh, billing because mm -hmm. that was a capability of the hardware and software at the time. Then it moved to where we can do more, uh, collect more data, a lot more cloud support. So now we can really do population management in terms of utilization um, and quality. And those are the issues on the table now. They basically need to get utilization and quality right, and they have all the metrics around that. Uh, quality in terms of safety, um, uh, customer service, um, are we getting all the preventive health measures, and, and what the guidelines say, getting those things done, because we're really trying to have a high standard of care across the whole country or, or about that enterprise anyway. Um, yeah. But the technology is not there yet for what we need on the ground. Uh, AI promises to be uh, helpful there. So we'll, 
that remains to be seen. Yeah, we have to just we have to just wait and watch. I think most of the times when you call when we talk about AI, people are talking artificial intelligence. I'm like, it's, it's not artificial intelligence. It's probably augmented intelligence. It's like exactly. Exactly. it's like giving you additional hands and legs and brain to do the work. It's, it's, it's not creating anything artificial. Exactly. So, but I mean, if you look at it that way, there are ways that you know, of course, AI can help. Now that brings me to, a, to an interesting point. I want to pick your brain on this, which is, you know, compare a physician, let's say, from 15 years ago to a physician now. Now you talked about looking at the standard of care and quality of practice, looking at improving Presgeny's care scores and all of those things. At the same time, be able to be an expert with the EMRs and the tools that you need to use. Now, in addition to that, there is more telehealth care that is coming up where everybody is claiming, well, our software is easy to use. It's just a click and stuff. As a physician, you have to be well-versed with those as well. At some time, you could be providing care, half of it through tele, half of it through in-person visits, and you may have to kind of juggle between all of these. Yes. So now that the, the physicians of this age are having to juggle with multiples of the systems, multiples of the models, I even heard from physicians, by the way, you know, we've worked with a lot of physicians because we are a staffing company. We connect clinicians directly to the employers, circumventing the middlemen so that each one can have the best choices. And we hear a lot from these clinicians, physicians, stating sometimes they work with patients that are in the value-based care population, and sometimes patients that are not, you know, they get a flag or something. They, they have to constantly be reminded of the models. So based on all of these things, and especially with the primary care physician that is right at the forefront of this, it's the gatekeeper, so as to call it, you know, call it, they're exposed to more models than, let's say, a hospitalist, right? So how should, you know, the, the physician of today's age keep up with all this and at the same time not get burned out? What, what should they be doing? How, how should the training change in order to help them? That's an excellent point. Um, my take on that is that we need to remember what our mission is. All these things are tactics, strategies, and so forth to achieve a goal. Um, and my own work in terms of having advanced care planning discussions mm -hmm. with our patients, um, I actually came to that because I was a proxy for our parents. And um, at that time, and they've gone on now, they passed on, but I realized I was not having these conversations with my patients. Just kind of came face to face with that. And then mm. I thought, okay, I'm going to start doing it. It was hard. I really couldn't get it done. Um, even though Medicare will pay for a visit a year, it just never seemed to happen. The patient might reschedule. They might be late. I might be late. Uh, they might have a more pressing condition at the time and you kick the can down the road. So I looked for ways to integrate this into my regular workflow. But in the process, I found that it helped me to increase, improve connection with my patients. And I think when I talk about the mission, it's really about connection. Mm. Um, and so many things that we do in companies, industries, and so forth, they really come down to relationships. And this is what, in primary care, it's about the relationship. Um, what's different for us compared to, say, an emergency room physician or an intensivist or even some many specialty position, uh, um, specialties is that ours is about uh, continual care over a long period of time. 
Uh, so from, from your point of view, as far as employment, you really want a doctor who's going to be there for 10 or 20 years. Mm. Because when you talk about chronic care, that's the kind of relationship that our patients need. Um, it's whether they're seniors or whether they, especially if you have patients who have multiple comorbidities that are complex, it might take a doctor two to three years sometimes to really sort out what's really going on and what's necessary and what a really good treatment plan for a patient is. It takes a time. Sometimes you might get in a few weeks. Sometimes it may take getting their family issues you want to be aware of. And, you know, people are people. They're part of systems of their own families and communities. Um, and so it becomes a disservice and certainly a disadvantage to um, a healthcare company if a doctor is yeah. changing every six months to a year. Uh, eventually, the patient's not going to trust the system because they can't enforce, they can't afford to invest. It's kind of like if you have a sister and she's changing boyfriends every six months. Well, after a while, you don't care who it is. <laughs> At first, she yeah. asked them 30 questions, you know, but after that, it's like, okay, who well, next? Time. Yeah. <laughs> and no, you don't true. want your patients in that situation because that increases uh, safety issues. Yeah. That increases uh, issues of um, excessive medical utilization. Um, and uh, lack of supporting a patient, and the more complex the patient it is, the more costly that is in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a good point. I think I think the mission is for better connection and better outcomes. I mean, outcomes is part of the connections. Yeah, because exactly. it becomes a trusting relationship. You build. We build trust for our patients. They build trust for us. Yep. And um, and you want a treatment plan that is really meaningful to the patient. Um, I'm thinking if you don't have that longevity, we tend to have treatment plans that are by the book um, yeah. and that we can defend, obviously. But, yep. um, but it's harder for us to advocate for the patient because they don't know us. And what's interesting is harder for the patient to advocate for us. The reason why I say that, I was just thinking recently about a situation where we might have a patient who they love Dr. Jones. I'm sure all of our your doctor listeners understand this and they trust you because they feel you get them but they may have a daughter or a son who is their caregiver or responsible for their care if they were not able to make their own decisions who don't know us like that and so they may have a question about a treatment plan that they don't understand our patient is kind of caught in the middle they don't understand the treatment plan technically to defend it to their child, but they're loyal to us. They're caught in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason why we want to improve. There's another thing you want to talk about is medical literacy, health literacy for our patients. Mm -hmm. if, if they have um, a higher level of literacy where they are able to understand the treatment plan and how it affects them in a meaningful toward them, they can defend that to their loved one and they can defend us as well. So it's not just a divided loyalty situation, but we're really talking about a treatment plan that really works that that we can defend and discuss. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. I think that's what's well said, like for the patients to understand the treatment plan, have trust in it, they should have that connection first, etc. You know, that... It takes me to a, uh, like an economic model calculation in my brain, which is 
Connections take time, but time is money. Yeah. The lesser you spend, the more profitable you tend to think that your practice could be. But then it becomes a vicious circle. You know, you're not spending enough time, you're not getting enough outcomes, but you spend lesser time, you spend lesser money. Health system from a cost perspective is already hurting. So where is the balance? I mean, how, how should a physician practice and practice of medicine determine the right balance between the time and outcomes? Or is value-based care the answer? That's difficult. I think we have to figure that out. Um, and there are a number of, as you know, a number of models. You have everything from concierge, which I'm not too familiar. I don't know anyone who's actually practicing, so I'm not sure if the economics really fulfill the promise there. Uh, it also depends on what the financial goals of the doctor are compared to their values slash spiritual goals. Mm. Some doctors, they really want to maximize income. Others may want to maximize lifestyle, personal lifestyle. Others may want to maximize um, their um, service to the patient. Mm. So in a sense, I don't think there is necessarily one model. I think it is helpful to have a bunch of models out there that doctors can choose from. That's a good point. And it's even better if you can have a multiplicity of models available no matter where you are, whether you're in a rural, uh, rural environment, urban environment, because doctors are individuals who have different needs and personalities. And yeah. If you have a model that fits that doctor, I imagine they can do better service. Absolutely, that's well said. You know, um, in our company, when we try to match the right clinician, right physician with the right job, we try to do a little bit of it. Try to understand the clinician's perspective. What are, what is your goal? Are you trying to maximize your lifestyle, meaning your shift preferences, location preferences? Trying to maximize your pay? Are you trying to maximize your patient care mission, meaning? You're okay to go to some of these rural areas, hard to serve areas and things like that. We try to take that and model it out and match them with, with those jobs that will help them maximize what their goal is. Perfect. Uh, and, and there is true, true satisfaction in doing that because otherwise staffing and recruitment typically have not, not focused on it so much. But what you're saying is if there are policies and economic models that also can cater to having a multiplicity of models for physicians, that's very smart. I think that should be one of the considerations in policy making. If you want to do this, this is the policy for you. On the other side, if you want to do this, this is a policy for you. Wouldn't that be like a great menu of policies? Of course, I know government doesn't work like that, but wouldn't, wouldn't that be uh, an awesome thing to have? You know, I, I'll remember that. Yeah, and I think that kind of can help replicate what probably existed before um, medicine was so insurance heavy. Mm. Um, because um, you had doctor practices that were pretty individual and people graduated, gravitated to the doctor and the practice that seemed to fit them. Yeah. Now, to some extent, um, the patients would be um, at a disadvantage in terms of the doctor in those days was the authority and had, quote unquote, all the information and the patient basically had none. So um, we don't want a situation where patients really cannot make informed choice, but yeah. we do want um, opportunities where doctors can have viable practice around what their personality type is and what seems to fit them. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you did mention advanced care planning, um, yes. Dr. Jones, and then you're currently doing a lot of work in this area as well as in the area of 
having end of life discussions and things like that just educate us you know a little more on that and what exactly is advanced care planning what kinds of discussions are they how important are they uh, and you know your experiences recommendations on how you handle some of these end of life discussions and what your current work there is well, what i learned was that um I began to approach it like this. I wanted to explain to patients in a way that they could get, first of all, an idea of what prognosis would look like. And I'm not sure how much time you have. I'll just try to say this in about five minutes. Um, so I went to visit, this is when I was doing home visits. I went to visit a gentleman, 94 years old, lived alone and in really great shape. He took care of his, um, all he, the only ailment he has was some, was some arthritis in his knees. Of course, he had a housekeeper, someone to help shop and so forth. But really, he was he was fine living on his own. I decided to ask him, sir, if um, you had a major heart attack, would you want everything done? And he thought about it for a while and he said, um, it depends. And that was not the answer I wanted to hear because I was hoping he would just tell me what I could just document and and move yeah. on. But that was really the wisest answer anyone could give. That's the answer I would give myself. I mm. imagine you would say the same thing. So I thought, okay, it's my job now to figure out what does it depends mean. And I was able to come up with basically two parameters and then kind of conceptualize that as a road trip. So on the x-axis is what is this, your stage of life or stage of chronic illness if you have one. And most people would say if it came so advanced that men medical intervention would not really help or change or make their quality of life better, they would say, well, I don't see the point in life extending measures at that point. On your y-axis is your functional capacity and level of independence. And most people would say that at a very low level of independence, extreme example being you're bedridden and you need help even for toileting, most, and, and there were no medical interventions that would change that, most people would say, I really don't see the point in life extending measures. So now we can draw a line where, okay, that kind of looks like the it depends that most people can really get their heads around. And so then we start talking, backing up from there. And so I found in the medical literature, um, um, what's called um, um, chronic disease trajectory. Mm. And there are basically three types of trajectory. One is cancer, where you maintain high level of functional capacity. And then in the last two months to two years of life, you have a sharp decline that's pretty much inexorable. Uh, the second is uh, chronic illness, chronic organ failure, that is similar to COPD, CHF. And you have um, periods where you have um, a loss of uh, health, become unstable. You may have to go into the hospital. And then as you get toward the end, you find you're almost in the hospital more than you're out of the hospital. Hmm. So that's kind of how that road goes. Most of us are going to be in the frailty dementia category, where you have a slow decline over a long period of time. And that's where most of our expense is, because people become more dependent and they require more support services. Unfortunately, the huge burden of that is really borne by the patient and family, because a lot of that is uncompensated. Um, but then at some point it becomes an insurance issue, whether it becomes uh, long-term care, uh, a lot of hospitalizations, and of course, where you have a lot of intensive care that's really of little benefit 
or a little, a little enhancement quality for the patient. So you have basically three roads, and I call those three road trips. Mm. You can uh, identify nine points along that road from pre-diagnosis of a chronic illness all the way toward the last one, which is, of course, dying. And so uh, that came out of medical literature also. And so what I did was that becomes an opportunity to educate patients. I would look at their problem list, which is we all have these lists of conditions that we're treating a patient for. I try to identify the top one, no more than three, that might be most life limiting for my patient, for this particular patient, and focus on that. And I start using that to discuss with my patient about, okay, here's where we are now. This looks, this looks like this in terms of what your physical findings, symptoms, and so forth. Emotionally, what impact is that having on you? What is your greatest fear? Yeah. Uh, socially, how does this impact your relation with your family, your work, your position in your community, your sense of self in your environment? Spiritually, where do you go for meaning uh, and support? And then if it becomes unstable, we go through all those four steps again, all the way toward uh, the end. Um, Phase three is pretty much where you have a chronic illness, but it's stable. We've got a treatment plan that's working. Phase four, unstable, but it can be managed outpatient. Five, unstable, but you require inpatient. Six, mm. unstable, critical, intensive care maybe. Um, seven is recovering. Eight is declining toward death. Nine is dying. Um, eight is where we want to bring hospice in. But we want to have take opportunities to discuss way before then at the earlier stages, identifying these different stages for the patient. We want to ask questions about the emotional, social, spiritual impact because this allows a patient to visit the future. Mm. We also have an action plan for each phase. So patients would begin to learn, okay, here's some of the decisions that you're likely to face at this stage. Um, these are some interventions that make sense. These are some that may not be beneficial, may not make sense. The advanced care plan is really an action plan for the eighth and ninth stage. That's all it God. is. It's just another action plan. And so when we have a chance to talk about this, frame it like that, it becomes a lot less um, fearful for patients to discuss. It becomes more um, supporting my own clinical curiosity as well, because as we look at these different stages and where a patient is, for example, I'll have a patient at phase three. Most of our patients will be there. They're stable. But I found there's a big difference between someone who's like 73, who's on two medicines and stable. In other words, we haven't had the change in treatment plan. They haven't had to go in the hospital. They're functioning. And someone who's on 10 medicines plus oxygen, and a walker. They're stable, but a huge difference in terms of what prognosis. And so I started looking at, okay, what's the likelihood that this person might actually move from a phase three to a four, five, or six in the next there, 30 days or three months? Sorry to pause you there, Dr. Jones, yeah. but is there, a, is there a defined quantitative and qualitative criteria and framework to assess the progression through stages? Is there a 
Audience in the literature, there's in the yeah. literature, and um, well, let's put it this way: let's say someone has congestive heart failure, um, and they're in a phase three, and they become unstable. And I'm looking at them; they come into the. I'm, it's an office visit. I look at them, and I'm thinking, okay, their heart failure is the most life limiting thing for them. Um, what's the likelihood that in the next thirty days, ninety days, or six months, this person will actually become unstable and why. Mm -hmm. um, so that helps me think a different way. I'm not just thinking about, okay, are you taking your medicines? Great. Are you feeling any shortness of breath? You're sleeping okay? Yeah, okay. See you next time. You know, get your prescription and we'll see you next time and stay on your diet, you know, things like that. We actually start looking at what are some factors. What exactly? Now, now we also have to consider that everybody's got the frailty factor as we get older. So I might have um, this patient and they are stable with their heart failure. I look at the frailty also. It may turn out that what may make them unstable is not so much their heart failure because they're, they're, they're complying with their diet and their medicines. Mm -hmm. And if they do that, fine. But they could fall. That's a game changer. Yeah. If they break a hip, you know, that's a game changer. We know that their time is limited after that. Mm -hmm. So we start looking at other factors that, that, you know, can play. We look at their relationship with family also in terms of if that should happen, Ms. Jones, what support do you have? Who would yeah. you stay with? Who would take care of you and so forth? Well, Dr. Jones, I've got a nephew in Arizona and he's the only one in my family. Okay. We need to start talking to your nephew because we want to have a plan. So that if something should change, would you be willing to stay with your nephew? Mm. Well, no, Dr. Jones, I can't do that. Okay, so we need to talk to our case manager and see what um, long-term care facilities. Why don't you start looking at some? Yeah, You don't have to make any decisions, but we just want you to know what's available. Well, Dr. Jones, you know, I have a church member and she's staying over here. I really like that place. Okay, let's, we'll make a note of that. Yeah. In yeah. case we need that resource, we already have it in place. So we don't have 20 crisis decisions to make. Exactly. If yeah. she has that fall, that becomes very expensive because sometimes if you don't have a place for someone to go, they're in a hospital with a lot of prolonged length of stay simply because you have no place for them to go. Yep, yep, yep. And yep. so we have a way of being proactive. And because a patient's talking through these things, and some patients really sometimes are staying up at night with these worries, but they don't know who to talk to about it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so now this takes time. Now, what do you do with that uh, in a doctor's office? We try to break it out, break apart. But at least with this process, I found I was able to at least take a bite out of the elephant. No, totally. You know, as we go, you know. Totally. I think this is this is actually, I think, great information and education for me. And I'm sure for a lot of our audience as well, because when I was reading about it through your bio and other things. To be very frank, I thought about it as more of a having an otherwise uncomfortable discussion, but it is actually more than that. It is a proactive strategy for better outcomes and lower costs. Yes. This is actually a health policy than just a method of care. I would so, even add this, that um, I found that by having these discussions, um, and it's not, as you can tell, I'm not having one big discussion. 
we tend to have those when a patient has a major change and now you have to bring the family in and have a family conference because we have to make some serious decisions. Here we're just trying. So what I found was that I learned more about their values, about what's important today. You'd be surprised how many people I started getting exercising. Mm. Because what happened was I was able to make the point now that if we can keep you independent, yeah. then your last days are more likely leading up to that are more likely to be independent days as opposed to dependent days. Yep. And so you try to tailor an exercise plan. So basically I'd have them come in and they got used to me. They said, I would say, uh, Ms. Jones, uh, I want you to stand up and sit down. Let me see how you stand up and sit down. Have you been doing these at home? I, you know, we talked about you're supposed to stand up and sit down 10 times at breakfast and dinner. Have you been doing, oh, Dr. Jones, I forgot. Okay, let me see you do them now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then after a couple of visits like that, they say, Dr. Jones, I was doing them. Yeah. Well, how do you feel? My knees feel better. My legs feel better. Going up and down stairs is easier. Yeah. Well, that's the outcome I was looking for. Yep. Yep. That's a great yeah. simple example to how these things need to be approached. I mean, now just because of the enlightenment I got about it, Dr. Jones, I could go on for the rest of the day talking about it, but I'm sure I'm sure our time is limited on this, but I can totally see we will come back to having more conversations, collaboration with you. So last question, as you were talking about it and you're a family medicine physician, advocate of primary care, you've, you've seen the evolution of the model. And as you were talking to me about it, I got to thinking, well, this needs to be an integral part of primary care, especially I was just reading an article like a few days ago where how the pandemic has exposed that the senior care is actually up for grabs. Whoever is able to come up with a better senior care model could could eventually become the leader in that space. And you know the pandemic has exposed that. You know we, we saw what happened in long term care facilities, you know, hospices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And now with this coupled with you know the general senior primary care with having advanced care planning planning as a proactive method for better outcomes, I'm thinking this should be a part of the general geriatric primary care, it should be embedded there. So what are your recommendations to our physicians out there that are potentially watching or will get this video later on or others out there on how to incorporate this into their primary care practice and potentially even get benefit out of it economically? Well, obviously I'm going to recommend my system, caring in system, uh, okay. www. Well, http www.caringinoneword.com um, because we start to have uh, these multi-dimensional conversations with our patients, um, and it's a way because very often uh, some doctors by personality may not be inclined to getting into some of the personal things with patients, others by lack of time or lack of support uh, in a practice for that. But that's so important. Um, I would say this, and, and the economics, I don't think really support this at this time, but actually being able to make home visits. And mm -hmm. I'm not saying that a doctor would need to go to the home for every visit, although some patients do require that. But um, hmm, once a year would make a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure how it would be compensated in terms of um, the RVUs and in terms of um, staffing and, and, and given that space on the doctor's schedule to do that. But when you see the patient's living situation, that's very eye-opening. 
Uh, on the one hand, you can see what some of the limitations are. Um, you get to see the patient's story a lot better. It's interesting, when I was doing home visits, we did a visit to a patient in Rockford, and Rockford, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And the, he had a, a, a chicken coop outside the kitchen. And so I'm doing a home visit in the kitchen and the chicken walks, a rooster walks <laughs> through the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me is a lot of fun because I, when I was yeah. a kid, I used to visit my grandmother and she had a farm. So that, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I, I could see the limitations if we talk about um, um, sanitation, other things. Yeah. It's going to have a little different definition for them than it would have for someone who has a squeaky clean polished up home mm. with uh, with uh, home support, home care support and things like that. Yeah. Um, and patients' expectations are different. And also they trust you more. And you kind of get to um, be part of their story as well. And that has, in primary care, I think that's really something. Um, um, to your point as well, I found that what helped me to really become more engaged because so much that's happening now has kind of caused us to become disengaged from our patient, which is the same as loss of connection. Hmm. What is yep. a patient's story? What is a patient's story? Um, um, one thing I always liked with, uh, was PD, um, uh, NPR's This American Life program because hmm. you would hear these stories about the most unlikely people, most unlikely situations. And that became an inspiration to me to look at the story, you know, seek out the stories of my patients. And we have patients, for example, giving extreme case who might be pretty unappealing to us in different ways. And uh, uh, we might have a very tiring day and it's like, okay, I don't want to see this patient. It might be a new patient. You get a first impression. You say, I don't think I want to like this patient. But once you start saying, okay, let me get curious about who they are. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you find this may be the most interesting patient with the most interesting story. Um, and sometimes they become an inspiration to you even by what their life has been like or their story has been like, um, which is really one of the reasons why I went into primary care. And I'm sure many of your listeners feel the same way. Yep. That's part of our mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh, a great mission, Dr. Jones. Thank you for that. So for all of the audience out there, all physicians, non-physicians, everybody, please check out www.caringn.com. Um, you know, I did that too. Plethora of resources on how to have these conversations, what exactly involved in the model. I'm sure you can all reach out to Dr. Jones directly as well on LinkedIn. We will be happy to facilitate those conversations. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for sharing all those experiences and your story and you know your observations and thank learnings with us me. today. I appreciate it. It was a great experience. I'm sure we'll collaborate more in the near future as well. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Raj. Goodbye.